Welcome to the show, folks. We're currently going through all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going through them simultaneously to get a thoroughly detailed, synchronized, comprehensive, and exhaustive sweep of the entire account of Jesus Christ. Now, last time we went over what's commonly known as the Christmas story. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were members of the Jewish priesthood. They were old and had no kids, and one day when Zach was performing his duties in the temple, the angel Gabriel showed up. Now, Gabriel is the angel that showed up to Daniel several hundred years prior. So everybody knew who Gabriel was, so this was a big deal for Zach. Gabriel showed up to tell him that in spite of his age and in spite of his wife's age, they would both have a son that would grow up and be a prophet that would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Now, folks, the people of that day were waiting for the fulfillment of a prophecy that was recorded in Malachi chapter 4 called the Great and Terrible Day of the Lord. Some pretty scary stuff. And according to Malachi chapter 4, a sign that would precede the great and terrible day of the Lord would be the return of the prophet Elijah. Since everybody was waiting for the fulfillment of that prophecy, Gabriel told Zach that his son would grow up and go out in the manner of Elijah, that he would be like Elijah, but not Elijah himself. And to make it even more clear, Gabriel told Zach to name his son John. Of course, Zach was doubtful about all of this and asked Gabriel for proof, so Gabriel took away his ability to speak. Then six months later, Gabriel paid a visit to the niece of Zach and Elizabeth, who was unmarried and still a virgin at this point. But she was engaged to be married to a guy named Joseph. Gabriel told her that she would have a son who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Her son would literally be the Son of God. Mary then went to tell her Aunt Elizabeth about all of this, who was six months pregnant by this time. And when Mary got there, John, inside Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy when Mary spoke. Both Mary and Elizabeth had themselves a very excited conversation about all of this. Then three months later, Elizabeth gave birth to her son, and when the neighbors asked the dad, Zach, what his name would be, he wrote down that his name was John. And at that moment, Zach got his speech back and talked for 12 verses straight. Then three months later, Jesus was born during the middle of a government-mandated census. Lots going on, people running around all over the place. No room at the local inn when Mary went into labor. So she had to give birth to Jesus in a barn somewhere and laid the newborn in a feeding trough. Meanwhile, there were some shepherds in a nearby field that had a close encounter of the supernatural kind. The glory of the Lord flashed and shone all about them and scared them to the point that their bodies were physically sore from the event. An angel materialized in front of them and told them that a Savior had been born in the city of David, which was Christ the Lord, and then told them how to find him. After searching, they'd find him lying in a feeding trough. Then appearing with the angel were the troops of the armies of heaven, cheering the announcement of this incredible news, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of good will. Then, after the angel disappeared and the shepherds stopped shaking in their shoes, they ran over to Bethlehem, found Jesus in the feeding trough, and told Mary and Joseph what they saw. Then the shepherds returned to their fields, excited about what happened, talked about it still, while Mary quietly held all of these things in her heart, pondering and weighing them over. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Let's jump right on in. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. 
When the time for the mother's purification and the baby's dedication came, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be set apart and dedicated and called holy to the Lord. And they came also to offer up a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, which is a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Actually, folks, there's more to it than that. You'll find all these requirements laid out in Exodus chapter 13, verses 1, 2, and 12, Leviticus chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, and Numbers chapter 8, verse 17. You'll notice here it says that Mary and Joseph came up to offer up a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, as a sacrifice. In Leviticus chapter 12, you're supposed to offer up a lamb as a sacrifice. But a lamb costs money. And if you weren't financially able to offer up a lamb, then Leviticus had a loophole that would allow two turtle doves or two young pigeons as a substitute. I say loophole, that might not be an appropriate term, but you get the idea. You're supposed to offer up a lamb. But if you couldn't afford a lamb, two turtle doves or two young pigeons would be acceptable. And you can find all of that in Leviticus chapter 12. Mary and Joseph weren't wealthy by any means. They couldn't afford to offer up a lamb. But they were doing the best they could to abide by the Old Testament law. You know, you've got these two young kids making this trip to Jerusalem to dedicate their newborn son to the Lord because the Bible told them to. But they can't afford part of the requirement, which is a lamb. So they're here offering up two turtle doves instead. Do you notice the awesome irony here in all of this? They couldn't afford the price of a lamb to offer as a sacrifice. You know they would have if they could. They made the trip to Jerusalem. They've been faithful in every other way. But they just couldn't afford the price of a sacrificial lamb. They had to accept the Levitical substitute, which was two turtle doves. But the baby that they're carrying with them to dedicate to the Lord became the sacrificial lamb of God to not only cover their sins, but the sins of the entire world and of all human history. Jesus became our sacrificial lamb because God knew that we couldn't afford the price to pay for our sins. Mary and Joseph didn't know it, but when they dedicated their son to the Lord, they did offer up a sacrificial lamb, not only for themselves, but for all of us. Continuing on, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was devout, cautiously and carefully observing the divine law and looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been divinely revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. It's amazing how history repeats itself, folks. You know, the people of that time period had the complete Old Testament, full of prophecies of Jesus' first and second coming. All of the details were there in black and white, but not everybody read it. They got it spoon-fed to them by the religious leaders who had gotten into the routines, the ceremonies, and the traditions of the Old Testament, but had forgotten what it all meant. But there were those who did read it, who had developed a personal relationship with God, and they knew how close the Messiah's first coming was. Now, they didn't know the exact date, but they observed the history and the current events of the world around them, and they knew it was close. They understood the prophecies in the Old Testament about his coming. They had the book of Daniel. They had the book of Isaiah. And it prophesied all of this about the condition of Israel, the unmarried woman who was a virgin, the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem. All of it was pre-recorded in the Old Testament. They knew it was close. 
But most of the religious leaders were clueless, even the good ones like Zechariah. Just one year earlier, Zach tried to argue with the angel Gabriel in the temple about what was possible and impossible for God. Wound up getting his tongue tied for nine months. He was a priest and was clueless as to the times he was living in. But there were others who did know. And here we have this guy, Simeon, who's been waiting. And verse 26. It had been divinely revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. So this is an older guy who's expecting to see the Messiah at any day now. Every time he goes to the temple, he wonders, is this the day? Verse 27. Prompted by the Holy Spirit, he came into the temple enclosure. And when the parents brought in the little child Jesus to do for him what was customary, according to the law... Simeon took him up in his arms and praised and thanked God and said, And now, Lord, you are releasing your servant to depart this world in peace, according to your word. For with my own eyes I have seen your salvation, which you have ordained and prepared before in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to disclose to them what was before unknown, and to bring praise and honor and glory to your people Israel. Folks, he's paraphrasing here Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 which says, I, the Lord, have called you, addressing the Messiah, for a righteous purpose and in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and will keep you, and I will give you for a covenant to the people Israel and for a light to the nations, the Gentiles, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who sit in darkness from the prison. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. Ooh, well, that settles a few debates, doesn't it? Simeon says all of this, and Mary and Joseph are just standing there with their mouths open. Verse 33 says, And his legal father and his mother were marveling at what was being said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and then said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed and destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is spoken against. And a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the secret thoughts and purposes of many hearts may be brought out and disclosed. Wow, what a thing to tell her. I wonder if she knew what he meant. Folks, he was paraphrasing and referring to a couple of passages in Isaiah, the first one being Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, that said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our guilt. The needful to obtain peace and well-being for us was upon him. And with the stripes that wounded him, we are healed and made whole. He also paraphrased Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15 that said, He shall be a sanctuary, a sacred and indestructible asylum to those who reverently fear and trust him. But he shall be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble thereon, and they shall fall and be broken and be snared and taken. All of that in just a couple of verses in Isaiah, folks. This guy Simeon knew all about what was coming for this little baby. He knew his destiny. I wonder if Mary knew how well he knew. Continuing on in verse 36, And there was also there at the temple a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, having lived with her husband seven years from her maidenhood, and as a widow for eighty-four years. Wow, she was old. Married for seven years, widowed for eighty-four. If she was married at thirteen, that'd make her a hundred and four. Good grief. She did not go out from the temple enclosure, but was worshipping night and day with fasting and prayer, and she too came up at that same hour, and she returned thanks to God and talked of Jesus to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
And when they had done everything according to the law of the Lord, they went back into Galilee to their own town, Nazareth. Now, folks, that verse, verse 39, is a very condensed version of what happened between them being in Bethlehem and Nazareth. To get the whole story, you've got to go to Matthew chapter 2. At this point, we don't know how much time has passed since Jesus' birth and dedication. But for reasons you'll see here in a little bit, it could have been anywhere between six months to two years. We're about to get into a part of the Christmas story here that really isn't part of the Christmas story. The wise men and the star. We often think about this in connection with the manger scene, but Mary and Joseph didn't spend six months to two years in the stable. Matthew chapter 2 verse 11 clearly points out that Mary and Joseph by this time lived in a house. And for whatever reason, they decided to stay there in Bethlehem for a while. So let's pick this up at Matthew chapter 2 verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, some of your Bibles may say astrologers, from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. Folks, there's a lot of confusion and mystery surrounding the identity of these wise men. Some Bibles call them astrologers because of the star business. The casual view of who these guys were is that they were financially well-to-do scholars of some kind. Another view, in addition to that, was that they were actually kings from foreign lands. I'm sure you remember that Christmas song that even gets sung in some churches, We Three Kings Have Heard on High. Well, it turns out that all of this is based on legends. There's no historical basis for any of this. First of all, there's nothing in Matthew that says there were three of them. It's assumed there were three, because they present three gifts to Jesus when they eventually find him. Actually, it wasn't even three gifts. It was three types of gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. As for the quantity, the Bible doesn't say. And as for who these wise men really were, you have to go back to the original language and do a little digging. Matthew called them the Magi, M-A-G-I. The Magi were originally a cult religious group that had its roots in ancient Babylon. It became the state religion of Persia after some Magi were attached to the Median court for being experts in the interpretation of dreams. In the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar was always looking for the interpretation of his dreams. He was always inquiring of the Magi. The King James called them magicians. But Daniel accurately interpreted his dreams, and the king put him in charge over the Magi. So with Daniel being in charge, the prophecies of the coming Messiah were known by the Magi. Fast forward 600 years. The Magi had both priestly offices and government offices. It's where we get the word magistrate. And the duties of the Magi at that time included the absolute choice and election of the king of a realm under Persian Parthian control. Now, during the time of Matthew chapter 2, the Persian Parthian Empire and the Roman Empire were the two great powers of the world. The control over Jerusalem had gone back and forth. At this point in the story, Rome had just managed, through political maneuvering, to get control over Jerusalem again, and they set it up as a buffer state between themselves and the Persian Parthian Empire. King Herod wasn't really a Jewish king. He was appointed by Rome. He was an Edomite. He was a tool of Rome. So things were pretty stressful for King Herod. The Jews didn't really like him because he wasn't a true Jewish king. The Romans were just using him. And at any time, his own subjects could conspire in bringing the Parthians to their aid. 
So while Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem during the first month or maybe first year or two of Jesus' life, Israel is under Roman control, but barely. At any time, the Persian Parthian Empire could take it back. Israel's king is an appointee of Rome, and then suddenly, Magi show up. The Persian religious and political magistrates, whose duties included the absolute choice and election of who was to be king of a realm in their territory. They were probably traveling in style, with all of the political and national symbols, and in force, with their own cavalry to ensure their safe penetration of Roman territory. So with all that in context, let's get back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east at its rising, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. Yeah, I bet he was. Herod, along with everyone else, is probably wondering, is Persia planning to take Israel back from Rome? This is certainly a bold move to send the Magi over here. By caravan, that's about a year's journey. They weren't just passing through. This was front page news. What are they doing here? And with the question they're asking, it implies that they don't recognize Herod as Israel's king. Where is he who was born king of the Jews? Something else kind of weird here about their statement. They said, we have seen his star in the east at its rising and have come to worship him. This is weird on multiple levels, folks. The Magi were a religion that wasn't biblical. It was a pagan religion. It had a lot of similarities with the God of the Old Testament. They believed in a single God as creator of the universe. They also believed that there was a single opposing spirit that was evil. They had their own form of priesthood and so on and so forth. But they didn't follow the Old Testament. They had all kinds of weird occultic practices that involved astrology and things like that. But throughout the centuries, they had combined all of that with what they learned from Daniel 600 years ago. And they apparently saw something in the sky that they called a star that they associated with the birth of the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And they made a year's journey to do what? They said, we have come to worship him. Apparently, they learned more from Daniel about this coming Messiah than is generally known. And they held on to what they learned for 600 years. And whatever it was they saw, it led them to Israel. It's disappeared now for some reason. It didn't lead them to Bethlehem. It only led them to Israel, so they went to Israel's capital, if I can use that word, in search of the new king who was born king of the Jews. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed and troubled, and the whole of Jerusalem with him. So he called together all the chief priests and learned men and scribes of the people and anxiously asked them where the Christ was to be born. Herod is now all of a sudden a believer of Old Testament prophecy. And they replied to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not in any way least or insignificant among the chief cities of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will govern and shepherd my people Israel. Folks, the scribes there were paraphrasing Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was written more than 700 years before this conversation took place. Although there is one neat little nugget in that verse that they didn't paraphrase. If you go back to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, you are little to be among the cities of Judah, or the clans of Judah. Yet out of you shall one come forth for me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, of everlasting. Old of everlasting. Folks, when you get into the original Hebrew, the Hebrew word there implies a state of existence before time began. 
So the religious leaders there, the scholars, tell Herod, according to the prophet Micah, that the Christ is to be born in Bethlehem. Which, by the way, why weren't they excited about this? They knew Micah 5 too. Why weren't they in Bethlehem searching around for the biblically prophesied newborn king of the Jews? Doesn't that say something about the religious leaders? Then Herod sent for the Magi secretly and ascertained from them the first moment they saw the star to the last moment before it disappeared. Herod's trying to get an idea of how old the newborn king of the Jews is. Verse 8. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search for the child carefully and diligently, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may too go and worship him. Yeah, right. When they had listened to the king, they went their way, and behold, the star which had been seen in the east in its rising went before them again, until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. When they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. Folks, let's talk a little bit about this star I've read where people have tried to come up with some astrological or astronomical explanation for this. I've heard people talk about the passage of comets during this time period. I've heard them talk about the position of certain planets at that time. As though any of that could possibly be an adequate explanation for what we're seeing here. Verse 9 says the star stood over the place where the young child was. That means whatever this thing was, it was within our atmosphere. And it had to be pretty low in order for there to be any perception of depth. You ever notice that when you're driving at night, the stars move as you do? You can't follow a star. When the Bible uses the term star, it means a small point of bright light in the sky. In Genesis, it says God made the sun, the moon, and the stars, i.e. points of light. Not all of the points of light in the sky are solar objects. Some of them are planets. When scientists discovered that stars were solar objects, much like our own sun, then we redefined the word star. We call our own sun a star now. It's a star that's very close to us. But we don't sit on our porch in the evening to watch a star set, do we? We watch a sunset. So this point of light that was in the sky that led the Magi to the house where Jesus was, it was something supernatural within our atmosphere. Some have theorized that it could have been an angel. There are some passages in the Bible that make a linkage between stars and angels. It's been my view that some of the UFOs videotaped by UFO spotters in recent years are actually fallen angels putting on a show to advance the New Age movement. So we don't know what this thing was that the Magi saw. All we do know is that it looked like a star and it was inside our atmosphere so that its movement could direct the Magi to where Jesus was. Now, some people have wondered if this whole business with the star was satanic. They look at the Magi and they say, hey, it's a pagan religion. The Magi, they were the ones who informed King Herod of the existence of the Christ child to begin with, and he eventually attempts to have Jesus killed. The king didn't know anything about Jesus until the Magi showed up. So some people wonder if this star was satanic. But there's a big problem with that theory. Why would Satan want to lead the Magi to Jesus if all they wanted to do was worship him? And why lead the Magi? Why not just lead Herod or Herod's troops? So this raises an even bigger question. Why would God entertain the fancies of a religious cult? You've got to remember, the God of the Bible had a reputation in the eyes of these Magi that was first introduced to them by Daniel 600 years ago. So this wasn't God condoning the Magi religion. It was God living up to his name. And what doesn't get recorded in the scriptures is what happened to these individuals of the Magi afterward. 
Yeah, sure, we know about Persian history and something about the Magi religion itself, but these particular individuals who traveled a year's journey in search of the one who was to be the prophesied Messiah, we don't know what happened to them. But in this one little chapter, they showed more faith than the religious leaders did. The religious leaders didn't go to Bethlehem. A lot of them didn't even know that the Messiah was coming. And those that did didn't seem to show any interest. But the Magi made a year's journey to find him. When they saw the star, they were thrilled with ecstatic joy. It went before them until it came and stood over the place where the young child was. Verse 11. And on going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Can you imagine what Mary and Joseph thought about all of this? I mean, their little boy is somewhere between one to two years of age. They received this huge visit from the Magi that was causing all the buzz in Jerusalem. And they fall down on their knees to worship him. I mean, if you're a mom, can you imagine important strangers coming to your house, entering in, and then bowing down on their knees to your little one-and-a-half-year-old boy? And on going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure bags, they presented to him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Folks, it doesn't say anything about how many gifts were given or the quantity of each, but here we have recorded three types of gifts. And there's a lot of symbolism behind gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold always symbolized royalty, or specifically in the biblical sense, deity. So the gifts of gold symbolized their recognition of his royal office, his deity. Frankincense was used by Jewish priests. It was mixed with the showbread. So the gifts of frankincense symbolized their recognition of his priestly office. Myrrh was a spice that was used on a corpse for burial. So the gifts of myrrh symbolized their recognition of what his mission would be to suffer and die as the suffering servant, to take away the sin of the world. With these types of gifts, the Magi recognized Jesus' deity, his royalty, his priesthood, and his death. There's another way you can look at this. If gold equals his deity, his royal office, then that covers the world of politics. If frankincense equals the priesthood, his priestly office, then that covers the world of religion. If myrrh equals his suffering death, then that covers the world of servanthood. Or you could say, myrrh represents death itself. The laws of physics under the curse. Politics, religion, and the laws of science. He's everything. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. We find out later in the book of Revelation, after Jesus comes back to the planet Earth, and the Antichrist has been put in his place, and Jesus rules over the universe from David's throne in Jerusalem, He's offered gifts again, gold and frankincense, but no myrrh. The death, the cross, all that's behind him. His royal office and his priestly office are eternal, but there's no more death. But anyway, the Magi visited Jesus' home, presented him gifts, bowed down on their knees to worship him, and verse 12, receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Evidently, folks, the Magi had a feeling Herod wasn't really interested in worshiping Jesus. And apparently they prayed about whether or not they should go back to Herod and give a report. Because verse 12 says, receiving an answer to their asking, they were divinely instructed and warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they departed to their own country by a different way. 
And that's the last we ever hear from the Magi. Verse 13. Now after they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, tenderly take unto you the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you otherwise. For Herod intends to search for the child in order to destroy him. And having risen, he took the child and his mother by night and withdrew to Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. Folks, we don't know how long that took, but it probably wasn't too long because Herod was gravely ill at this time. Everybody was waiting for Herod to die for one reason or another. Then Matthew makes a strange connection of this to Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt have I called my son. I say it's strange because if it weren't for Matthew, I never would have made the connection. Because that verse in Hosea, in its context, doesn't seem to have anything to do with this. And yet, when you look at it carefully, the phrase, I have called my son out of Egypt, stands out. My son. There are some similarities between Israel's exodus from Egypt and what's happening here in the book of Matthew. When Israel was under Egyptian slavery and Moses was born, Pharaoh found out about it when his counselors informed him of a star that proclaimed his birth. And then Pharaoh ordered the death of all the Jewish babies. See the similarities? Moses himself, before he became the tool that God wanted him to be, he wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. The same thing happened to Jesus right before his ministry. See, there's two kinds of prophecies. There's the kind that's obvious, where it's right there in black and white, like in Daniel and Isaiah. There shall be a Savior born in Bethlehem. Stuff like that. We'll discover a lot of those as we go on, by the way. And some of them are so bold and precise, it'll give you goosebumps. But then there are those obscure prophecies where it really isn't a proclamation by a prophet, but a scenario that actually happened in history and was recorded in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit uses it as a model, kind of like a stage play. For example, there really was an Abraham. He really did have a son named Isaac. And God really did tell Abraham to sacrifice his son. Of course, you know the story. Isaac didn't die. At the last minute, God offered a substitute. That really happened. It's a matter of history. But it was a stage play. Abraham was playing the role of God the Father. Isaac was in the role of Jesus Christ. You go back and read that account in Genesis. Even after we know Isaac didn't really get killed, the moment after Isaac was going to be sacrificed, his name is conspicuously absent from the storyline. Even though you know he's there, for some reason his name's absent. Until something that happens three days later. Then all of a sudden his name shows up again. When Jesus died on the cross, when was he resurrected? Three days later. Spooky stuff. And as we go through the book of Matthew, he'll say, this fulfilled that prophecy. And most of them are obvious. Some of them require a little homework. And we're going to try to limit ourselves to the ones that are obvious so we don't get distracted. But I just wanted to share that with you in case you ever get hung up on what's supposed to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And you go back and look at it, it's like, huh? Some of them require a more broad understanding of the whole story. And we'll get into all of those when we start reading through the Old Testament. So anyway, Joseph took Mary and Jesus to hide in Egypt to wait for Herod's death. Verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been misled by the Magi, he was furiously enraged. And he sent and put to death all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that territory who were two years of age and under reckoning according to the date which he had investigated diligently and had learned exactly from the Magi. See, the Magi made a year's journey. We don't know if they started the moment the star appeared or what. Jesus was at least a year old. Add to that time, the Herod waited for the Magi to return. Herod orders the death of all the male children who were two years of age and under. Verse 17, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentations. 
Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Folks, that's another one of Matthew's references to a more obscure prophecy and requires a little homework, but we'll move on. You know, folks, you can start in Genesis and work your way up all the way to Matthew to see Satan's desperate and vicious attempts at doing everything he knows to do to stop Jesus from coming. Once Satan realized the Messiah would be a man, a human, Satan tried to ruin the human gene pool in Genesis chapter 6. When Satan realized the Messiah would be a Jew, he had Egyptian slavery. Then the death of the Jewish male children when Moses was born. After Israel was delivered from Egypt, you have Ramses trying to kill them all at the Red Sea. Then after Egypt is no longer a threat, Satan finds out where the Jews are to settle and sets up a minefield of giants there. When Satan finds out that the Messiah will be of the bloodline of David, then Satan focuses all of his attacks on the lineage of David. He even sends Goliath when David was a kid. Just a ruthless, persistent, desperate attempt all throughout history to stop Jesus from coming. And now he lives, but he's a child. And through Herod, Satan tries again to stop God's plan of redemption, but fails. And then Herod finally dies, verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Rise, tenderly take unto you the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Then he awoke and arose and tenderly took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But because he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being divinely warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. He went and dwelt in a town called Nazareth, so that what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene, which means a branch or separated one. I'm sure you had people back then, folks, debating over the prophecies of the Old Testament just like we do today. You know, you have these two prophecies that seem to contradict each other. One says he'll be born in Bethlehem. Another says he'll be called a Nazarene. How do you reconcile those? Well, this is how. Jesus was born in Bethlehem and spent his infancy there but moved to Nazareth and was raised there. He grew up there. Now that he's in Nazareth, to continue the synchronized chronology, let's go back to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 40. In Nazareth, the child grew up and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom and the grace and the favor and the spiritual blessing of God was upon him. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem to the Passover feast. Folks, the Passover feast was established the night before Israel was freed from Egyptian slavery. God, via Moses, had sent several plagues to Egypt to get Ramses to set Israel free. But he wouldn't budge. And finally, Ramses got fed up to the point that he offered his own plague. You know, I'm sick of all these plagues from the God of Israel. You want a plague? I'll give you a plague. Tomorrow morning, I'm sending my troops out to kill all the firstborn of Israel, starting with Moses' firstborn. How do you like that, O God of Israel? God says, really? You want to play rough? I'm coming after your firstborn tonight. From the firstborn of your cattle, your servants, all the way up to you. Now since Israel was technically still under Egyptian rule at that point, that included them as well. So God set up a system that just like everything else God did in the Old Testament was symbolic of a bigger truth to come later. If you didn't want the firstborn of your house to die, you had to put lamb's blood on your door. And you do a little homework, you find out that the blood that was put on those doors was in the shape of a cross. So God sent out one angel to wipe out all the firstborn of Egypt who didn't have lamb's blood on their door. And it shook Pharaoh up so much that he finally let Israel go. The night in which death passed over the house of Israel became known on their calendar as Passover. 
On the Jewish calendar, it's the month of Nisan, on the 14th, the 14th of Nisan. On the Jewish clock, a day ends and another begins at sundown. Now, we use midnight. So on our calendar, the first Passover was on a Friday the 13th. That's where all that got started. To Israel, it was a night of salvation. Death passed over the house of Israel, and the next morning, Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery. But to the world, to Egypt, it was a curse. And that's where all the superstitions come from that surround Friday the 13th. So anyway, there was a festival, a feast in Jerusalem, every year to commemorate Passover. And no matter where you lived in Israel, if you were a Jew, you made a trip to Jerusalem every year to take part in the feast of Passover. Verse 41. Now Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year to the Passover feast. And when he was twelve years old, they went up, as was their custom. But when the feast was ended, as they were returning to Nazareth, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. Now his parents didn't know this. They supposed him to be in the caravan. They traveled on a day's journey. Mary and Joseph probably thought he was with his cousin John. Verse 44, But supposing him to be in the caravan, they traveled on a day's journey. And then they sought him diligently, looking up and down for him among their kinsfolk and the acquaintances. And when they failed to find him, they went back to Jerusalem, looking for him up and down all the way. Folks, i got to interject something here. Any normal parent who's lost their child in this way would have been scared. But what if you were the parent of Jesus Christ? The pressure. What was Mary thinking during the time they'd lost Jesus? You know, virgin births don't happen every day. So I'm sure they were very scared, even more than any normal parent would be scared during all this. Continuing on. When they failed to find him, they went back to Jerusalem, looking for him up and down all the way. After three days, they came upon him in the court of the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished and overwhelmed with bewildered wonder at his intelligence and understanding and his replies. All who heard, folks, that includes the scholars, the religious leaders, the doctorates, the learned men, the scribes. They weren't just impressed. They were astonished and overwhelmed with bewildered wonder. We'll get plenty of examples of Jesus' ability to debate all throughout the Gospels, but I wish we could have gotten a little glimpse of it here. What were they talking about? People always talk about how heated that debates can get between Christians and atheists, but none of those debates hold a candle to the heated debates between two Christians on some biblical doctrine or theory. My gosh. So you've got these learned scribes, Pharisees, religious leaders, scholars of the Torah at the temple court talking with this 12-year-old boy who apparently held his own to the point that it freaked everybody out. Verse 48. And when they, Mary and Joseph, saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us like this? Here your father and I have been anxiously looking for you, distressed and tormented. Then Jesus said to them, How is it that you had to look for me? Didn't you know that it's necessary as a duty for me to be in my father's house and occupied about my father's business? But they didn't comprehend what he was saying to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was habitually obedient to them. 
And his mother persistently guarded all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and years, and in favor with God and man. And that concludes today's show, folks. We finally got through the Christmas story, Jesus' birth, the wise men, Jesus' infancy and early childhood. And starting with our next episode, that's when the fun really begins. Jesus will be 30 years of age by this time, beginning his ministry. People thought he was impressive at age 12. Just wait till they get a load of him at 30. And this is what I've been looking forward to, folks, starting with our next episode and all the way through. Until then, we're out of here.